Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanek with Figured Out Baseball. Got a great Figured Out Baseball podcast today. It's uh, a part two, or or at least a round two, with Eddie Smith today. He's the hitting coach at LSU, of course, in the SEC Conference. Coach Smith has been with us once before. If you didn't listen to the first podcast we did together, I would certainly recommend that you do so. It was a great one. Uh, today we're going to follow up with him and just talk about some different things, maybe talk more specific uh, about hitting in some other areas as well, but Coach Smith is is known to be an excellent hitting coach. So I'm excited to talk with uh, with him about some hitting. In case you didn't listen to the first podcast, I'll give you a quick background on Coach Smith so you have a better idea, you know where he's been, where he's come from. He's from Olympia, Washington. He played collegiately at Centralia Community College, junior college in Washington State. Uh, the team set the school record for wins while he was there in 2004. He then went to Notre Dame to finish his playing career, which was his uh, the dream school for him. The team, when he was there, Notre Dame won the Big East Conference Championship twice. They also advanced to two NCAA regionals in his time there. He began his coaching career in the spring of 2007, where he began as the director of baseball ops at University of Virginia. He was there until 2011, and he finished up there as the volunteer. He then got the hitting coach job at Santa Clara in 2012. 2013, he spent one year coaching at Notre Dame. Then 2014 through 2017, he spent several years as the head coach at Lower Columbia College, a junior college in Longview, Washington. While he was at Lower Columbia, the team won three straight conference and regional championships. In 2015, Coach Smith was named ABCA and Diamond Pacific Association Division National Coach of the Year. 2018 and 2019, Coach Smith spent two seasons as the hitting coach and recruiting coordinator recruiting coordinator at Tulane in New Orleans. The team, while he was there, the team set the conference record for home runs, batting average, runs per game, total runs scored, total bases, slugging percentage, extra base hits, and walks per game. A really unbelievable job with the offense there at Tulane, which led to him being hired in July 2019 as the hitting coach at LSU, where he currently is. Coach Smith has also spent time coaching um, the USA Baseball, uh, one of the USA Baseball teams. He's also coached uh, nearly 50 major league draft picks and 14 major leaguers under his belt. Unbelievable uh, resume here from Eddie Smith. And Coach Smith, I just appreciate you taking some time to be on a podcast with us again today. Hey, Jeff, excited to be here. Uh, Always enjoy it. Last time that we did this, I started with something that sort of stood out from your bio. And I want to start out with something different today that we did not talk about last time, but that that I think is interesting and I'm I'm interested to hear... um, I guess how and why this uh, this came to be, but I found out between the last podcast and this one, just did a little more reading on you and found out that you got your degree from Notre Dame in Spanish. And I'm interested to know why that is, uh, if there's any particular reason that, uh, that that you decided that's what you were going to study in school. Uh, you know, um, there's probably a lot of things that went into that, Jeff, and um, maybe more than anything, just kind of where life uh, and the wind blew me over time. Um, I had a wonderful Spanish teacher in high school who, um, you know, kind of got me involved in the subject, and it always kind of came easy. I had a wonderful teacher at the junior college that I went to, and um you know, when it came time to start really making decisions about what to finish my degree, and I always seen myself, uh, you know, becoming a teacher and coaching um, sports at the high school level, and 
Um, Spanish was something that came very easy to me. And, uh, you know, when, when all is said and done and it was time to finish up uh, my degree and, and finish those last two years of school where everything's concentrated more on your major, uh, it just sort of became that way. And, you know, I think in the back of my mind, there were two other factors that kind of played in that. One was obviously uh, in, in the game of baseball, in the sport of baseball, uh, a lot of Spanish-speaking players out there, especially when you talk about the professional level and when you look at the footprint of the sport worldwide, um, you know, I thought that, hey, who knows where life's going to take me. Um, maybe this will come in handy on that side of things one day. And then, uh, you know, the other piece is personally, I, I enjoy traveling. Um, it's something that I like to do in my uh, personal time is get out and see the world a little bit and, uh, you know, just be able to have another language, uh, you know, it really unlocks several places in the world to be able to go travel on your own and um, maybe not have that language barrier um, stop you from doing some things. I was wondering if the baseball part of it came into it. That's um, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad, or else we would have I would have wasted the first question of the podcast. Uh, but but I'm curious is because you've also I read that you've done some international coaching. You've coached in the Dominican, in Aruba, in Japan. Uh, would you mind talking about those opportunities at all? And uh, I guess at least in the Dominican, how much it helped you that that you were fluent in Spanish. Well. You know, I think that um, one thing that's really cool about coaching is that the opportunities that come up along the way, uh, you never really know when they're kind of come up, but the, the, the chances to go coach internationally, uh, there's nothing like seeing the game played in different parts of the world. Every part of the world has its own little flavor, um, and, and it's really cool to see the differences, but the way that the game is also the same and how the game can bring people um, together who have, seemingly nothing else in common you know uh, the, the game of baseball you put some bases 90 feet apart and you throw a round ball out there and all of a sudden everybody speaks the same language and um, it, it's been some really special experiences for me uh, as you mentioned I've, I've been to Russia I've been to Japan I've been to Aruba and the Dominican Republic uh, you know all by the means of the game of baseball and um, you know those experiences for me have been you know, not only baseball experiences, but uh, some of those most powerful life experiences that I've had. Um, you know, you bring up specifically that Dominican um, Republic experiences. And, you know, I've now been to the island five times, visited that country five times, four for baseball. Uh, I've got people down there that I would consider friends. In fact, last time I went, my wife and I just went on a vacation. And uh, it was a last-second trip, got a great flight. And uh, we showed up maybe two or three days later. I didn't even tell anybody because I wasn't sure exactly what we were going to do. And, uh, you know, ended up knocking on the door of uh, a friend of mine, and we went out for dinner that night. So, um, you know, those trips have been incredible. The Spanish piece, uh, you know, being able to speak the language has allowed me to do some things um, in the Dominican Republic, at least, that that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. There's, there's no doubt, you know, in those trips, there's been times where I've had to go um, – you know, with a group of 30, 40 people and maybe be the lone um, bilingual person in the group and kind of been the translator for the English-speaking group and work together with the team that we're going to play uh, where, you know, maybe they don't have anybody who speaks um, English well enough to get the game started. So um, 
you know, those experiences are neat. They're fun. They bring people together from different backgrounds. And uh, I, I just, I really feel thankful for all those experiences. The Spanish-speaking part is, is certainly something that I think if there are any young coaches listening to this or even a player that thinks they might want to coach someday, um, I, I can't imagine that having a Spanish-speaking uh, have, having that be part of your of your schooling, even if it's even if it's just through high school, four years of high school. But if you can, you know, minor in Spanish or something along those lines, like I can't imagine that wouldn't help you. You know, at some point there's got to be a job that would be opened, and if you can put on your resume that you also speak Spanish, I, I, I've got to believe that's going to help with uh, you know junior colleges that might recruit um, you know Dominican players, kids from Puerto Rico. Um, you know that that are prime kids from South America as a junior college coach. And I, I don't know if Lower Columbia was like this at all, but as uh, the junior college that I coached in Iowa, we had a lot of Spanish speaking players on our team, and uh, it, it was at that time I thought, like, boy, I wish I had, I wish I had done some more studying in Spanish. And I, you know, had I kept coaching, I, I think that's something that I would have uh, attempted to do at some point just because I, you know, feel like it's going to come up at some point in recruiting and be a weapon for you as a coach. Um, I'd, I'd like to just, you know, flip the switch a little bit, Eddie, and just talk about hitting with you because I, I'd like to spend a lot of this podcast talking about hitting. It's one of, uh, it's one of the areas you're most well known for. Obviously you are the hitting coach at LSU. Um, and it's something that I'm passionate about talking and learning about, even though I don't, I'm not on the field coaching anymore. It's still something I like to talk about and learn. Um, I'd like to talk first with you a little bit just about the overall offensive philosophy, overall offensive approach at LSU, and maybe sort of what you want the team, your team's offensive identity to be. For example, like if you're when you're talking to your whole team, are there any? absolutes any sort of principles any um just anything in particular that you want every player at lsu to be known for or you want the overall lsu offense to be known for so when a team plays you they know lsu offense is going to be good at this this and this every year regardless of who's there because this is what you believe is most important um and just some some you know some things that my teams have done in the past is just we you know we wanted to play hard all the time wanted to you know run down the line full speed make make uh, difficult outs we wanted to be good at taking extra bases when they were there we wanted to be good at you know two strike approach and be very difficult outs when we got to two strikes and just things like that um i, I think are our philosophies that a lot of teams have can you talk about lsu and your offense there and just if you have anything overall offensive trademarks that you want the tigers to be known for I think when you talk about the entire offense, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, uh, we call it own the zone. Get a good pitch to hit. And uh, when the pitcher leaves the zone with balls, you know, make sure we're not chasing pitches. I think that's uh, a, a key component to good hitting. It's just you look at the numbers, they're staggering as far as when players hit balls that are in the strike zone compared to when players hit balls that are not in the strike zone. The statistics are just night and day you know you hit a pitch that's in the strike zone and um all of a sudden an average hitter turns really good if you only look at statistics when they're in the strike zone and we have that technology now to be able to do that and evaluate it that way and on the other side of that you know in most cases really good hitters 
are not very good when you look only at how they hit when the pitch is not in the strike zone. So uh, we do a lot of work on, on trying to own the zone, trying to make sure that we have a mindset, have an approach, um, make it a priority in order to swing at pitches that we can be successful at. How much does that, how much time do you spend with each player, maybe even particularly when they're new into the program, just gathering statistics for them to look at and, and, and be able to visually show them, uh, you know, that, that you handled this pitch? Because sometimes I'm sure players probably have a little bit of a misconception in their mind of what pitches they handle, what they don't. How much time do you spend on that individually, Eddie, just uh, working with your individual hitters, particularly when they're when they when they first get into the program, for them to really hone in on and be able to see for themselves that, you know, the damage they're able to do with pitches in different zones? And how do you do so? Yeah, uh, you know, it's a, that's a really good question, Jeff. What I would say on that is when players first get into our program, um, you know, it's going to take at least a year for us to have enough of a sample size to be able to say, hey, you know, you split the zone up into nine different regions hey, this is your hot zone and this is your cold zone. I mean, you know, I think one of the challenges we have right now that I see is everybody wants to be data-driven, and that's wonderful, especially when you have the kind of data sets that, you know, major league organizations have. But um, I, I see it also being absolutely distorted and abused, um, you know, when you have an understanding of how statistics work. Um, if you want to sit there and you only want to take, um, let's say, 50 batted balls, um, and divide that up by nine different zones, you know, and say, hey, this guy hit 667 in this zone here, but he only hit uh, 200 in this zone here. Well, if he was two for three in the zone where he hit 667 and um, one for five in the zone where he hit 200, you know, you, you can understand that all of a sudden one of those hits flipping into an out or one of those outs flipping into a hit totally changes the batting average in that zone or the OPS or however you evaluate it. So, um, you know, I think what we have to do as college coaches is evaluate it more from the side of the visual and trusting our gut than having the luxury of thousands of data points to be able to sit there and say, hey, print out somebody's track man data um, over the course of five years of their minor league development and say, hey, you we're really good in these four um, four pieces of the zone and these three pieces of the zone you weren't, so we're going to really shrink your zone to this. Um, we're going to have that same sort of conversation with players, but for us it's going to be a lot more based off of visuals, based off of video and specific pitches and saying, hey, that that's a chase right there. Identify it. Know it, what happened. Why did that happen? What can we do to make sure that going forward we're attacking are parts of the zone and so um I, I wish we had that luxury you know but um the real reality is what we don't you know when you understand data it's important to know that and so we've got to rely a lot more on gut feel and interactive conversations with the players to understand what they're thinking and what they're seeing and um try, try to make them better at understanding their zones that way so once you have a basic understanding of that and again, you're having conversations with an individual player. How does the count affect what that approach is? How much that zone shrinks or expands? Like, does it does it shrink and expand pitch to pitch? 
Um, for just for example, you have a hitter. Uh, he's in the box. Ball one. It's one zero. Does that does it does his zone shrink a little bit? Does it shrink a little more when it's two zero? If it goes to zero and one, does it expand a little bit or does it not expand until there are two strikes? Just sort of curious about how uh, sort of as as the count progresses, as the hitters ahead or behind, if that affects the size of the zone that that you again having conversations with your players to have them be as successful as possible if it if it shrinks or expands their zone as far as what they're looking for and what pitches they will swing at we like to make that as simple as possible for our players um, and what we tell our players is that hey there's either two strikes on you or there are not and when there are less than two strikes on you I want you having the same mindset in a 2-0 count as you would have in an 0-0 count and as you would have in an 0-1 count, and as you would have in a 3-1 count. I want that to be a controlled aggression. I want that to be, obviously, within your strike zone, your attacking zone, and that's when you have less than two strikes on you. Um, I know that, you know, in a lot of years, um, in the recent years, there's been a lot of traction to this concept of shrinking the zone with two strikes, and I totally understand it. You know, pitching is at an incredible point right now and and i think that you know it's only going to continue to develop and you know you see it in the major leagues where you've got uh i think it was over 250 guys through a pitch over 98 miles an hour last year or something like that uh you're only going to see velocities increase you're only going to see breaking balls get sharper and spin better as we start to understand this stuff better and so um i understand you know by shrinking the zone you're chasing less um I think that at the college level still, um, we can't convert to that way of thinking. Um, I think in the college game, there's a difference. You know, in the professional game, there's a feeling among a lot of teams that a strikeout is just another out. And and I certainly understand that, especially with a guy who hits 30 or 40 home runs a year at the major league level. But, you know, at the major league level in 2018, 30 teams fielded over 980 fielding percentage. That's every team in the league. Um, at the college level that same year, only 15 of 300 teams fielded at the 980 mark. And 14 of those 15 teams played on a home field that was uh, turf. And, and so I say all that to say college defenses are not even close to major league defenders. And when you put balls in play in college, things happen. And so in the college game, we've got to put balls in play. We can't strike out at the college level, okay? And and that's a major difference between Major League Baseball and college baseball. And so we've got to put balls in play. We also have a factor that the college strike zone is not the same as the Major League strike zone. You know, at Alex Box Stadium, since Trackman was put in, 35% of called strikes we're not in the strike zone, according to TrackMan. So as college coaches, we've got to develop our players to understand what is being called a strike in the college game. And so we have to expand our zone slightly with two strikes, um, especially for a guy who is already a very particular and selective hitter. And so, you know, with two strikes, we will make that adjustment. We like to say, hey, we got to foul off the pitcher's pitch. We will still take sure balls, understanding that, hey, the pitch that is not on the batter's box chalk line but is 
outside and off the plate in college baseball, that is a pitch that's going to be called a strike. We've got to be able to foul that pitch off, even though it's not a strike in the track man strike zone. It's a strike in college baseball. We've got to be able to foul that pitch off. And so that's the adjustment that we'll make with two strikes. And we always like to say, hey, pitcher makes a pitcher's pitch, you foul it off, and then you drive the pitcher's mistake. Are there any physical adjustments that guys make with two strikes? Or or is there a change in mentality other than, you know, swinging at, swinging at a pitch that's maybe going to get called a strike like you mentioned? Do you, is there any sort of change in mentality, change, uh, you know, physically guys in the box? Are they, are, are they moving up on the plate? Are they spreading their feet out? Are they getting rid of leg kicks? Are they choking up? Or are they, you know, a, anything like that? Or even like the, the timing of their pitch? I know a lot of coaches, two strike approaches to, you know, be ready for a, be on time for a fastball away and, and adjust fastball in, adjust off speed. Do you guys do any of that stuff? Any sort of a, uh, approach change physically or mentally with two strikes? Yeah, yeah, that, that's an individual thing for every guy on our team that uh, we'll, we'll try to figure out if they need to make any of those adjustments. Um, you know, a guy who's very selective at the plate will, will really emphasize, hey, now you got to expand your zone with two strikes. A guy who doesn't strike out a whole lot at all. Uh, doesn't chase the uh, uh, doesn't chase pitches. Period. Uh, we're not going to tell him, "Hey, you need to expand your zone." He's showing that he already has that kind of plate discipline. If he shows that over the course of a, a fall or you know a couple of seasons that he's not striking out a lot, we're not going to sit there and tell him to change anything. So every individual is going to be different with that. Some guys will choke up. Some guys will make conscious efforts to shorten their swing, whatever it might be. But again, that's an individual thing for sure. And as far as what pitches you're swinging at with two strikes, I'm, I'm sure that you're familiar with a lot of umpires that you get. Does it change game to game based on who's behind the plate? You know, if a pitch is, if, if you determine that this particular pitch is getting called a strike today, do you have do you have a conversation in the dugout sometimes with guys like, hey, this is being called a strike today, so there's no excuse not to swing at that. You've got to swing at it with two strikes because you know it's going to get called. Do you have those conversations with guys? Does it change depending on who's behind the plate and what that particular strike zone is that day? Because like you said, it's not a strike on track, man, but if the umpire says it's a strike, it is a strike. Does that change umpire to umpire, zone to zone? You know, uh, we have a lot of information about that sort of thing, but my feeling is that hitting is so hard, uh, maybe the hardest thing to do in all of sports, that, um, you know, we prepare for this day in and day out. We take rounds during our batting practice every single day that are two-strike rounds, uh, you know, and, and hitting's hard enough as it is. If you're trying to make the adjustment of, hey, you know, the strike zone's a little bit bigger today. I need to swing at a pitch that's um, an inch outside of where I would usually swing at. And you're facing a guy who's throwing 95 to 97 miles an hour with a plus breaking ball. Uh, I think that's impossible. So I like to have just a really good foundation for our guys, something that we work on every single day. And, you know, you, you just uh, you hope that you prepare really well and you hope that you execute really well. And over the course of time, you, you feel like if you can really stick to your plan, the game is going to reward you. Let's talk a little more, Eddie, about individual approaches. Um, you know, when an individual steps to the plate, I, I think to have, I think most coaches would agree that to have, a, to have success, 
he should have a plan as far as what pitches he's swinging at, which we've already kind of covered a little bit. Now, as far as what um, what the player is trying to do with the ball, uh, you know, as far as you know, guys trying to drive the ball over the fence, guys trying to other guys that might like to, they might feel like a strength is to uh, just hit line drives and use the whole field. Um, you know, do you, do you? What are kind of conversations you have with players about that to try to get them to understand their individual strengths and is, and and ultimately come up with an approach um, that's going to work for them in a game? How do you how do you what are conversations that you have with guys to to help them determine that? Because sometimes I again I feel like players and maybe it's different at your level in the in a Power Five type conference, but uh, you know sometimes players don't always have a great. Sometimes players try to do more than they're capable of, or they think that they're a different player than than maybe what you see. For example, a guy might think he's got a lot of power, but in your eyes, like for him to have success, he needs to try to hit more line drives, more doubles, as opposed to trying to hit, you know, uh, high, you know, thirty to thirty degree, forty forty degree balls in the air that are that are going to go out when he squares it, but when they're not, they're out. Um, can you talk about at all about conversations you have with guys just about setting an individual approach for themselves that's going to be successful for them as much as as much as possible make them the most successful hitters they can be yeah absolutely i I do think that stuff's important um with that said i tend to start 98 percent of players on the exact same plan and very few of them do i ever really deviate from this plan of I think that a great, great neutral starting point is if as a hitter you can just think about hitting every ball right past the pitcher's ear. And um, I think that provides a lot of margin for error. Uh, The reality as a hitter is that your timing is rarely going to be perfect. Your contact point is rarely going to be perfect. So when you're slightly imperfect, can you still be successful? How good can your misses be? You know, because all of a sudden now if you're putting uh, balls in play, and hey, 15% of those balls that you put in play are, are, are perfect as far as the timing and the contact point. Hey, can you at least have 50% of those balls that are close enough to perfect that they're still going to put a lot of pressure on the defense? And my feeling is that, hey, when you're thinking, I'm going to hit the ball right past the pitcher's ear, okay, if you're slightly under that ball, you got a chance for a ball to be the ball that goes off or over the fence. When you're slightly on top of the ball, that's that one hop ground ball that gets through the infield a lot of the time. Uh, when you're slightly early, it's the ball that goes right over the pull side infielder's head. And when you're slightly behind late, it, it goes right over that opposite infielder's head. And, uh, you know, there will be some adjustments to this. Again, it's probably. On our team, there's probably three guys that I can think of that we really have any other approach of, of, of other than hit it right past the pitcher's ear. One guy is in his third year. Um, he's a guy that we, we aren't afraid to let him get the barrel out a little bit. Obviously, fences are a little bit shorter. Um, you know, when you're not in the middle of the field, this guy has an incredible eye. He doesn't swing and miss very much. And so we aren't afraid to let him cheat a little bit. Um, you know, he's a he's a guy who we aren't afraid to let him get the barrel out and tell him, hey, you know, you hit, hit this ball right over the pull side infielder's head. That's your goal as a hitter. And, and all of a sudden, when you're a little bit early, okay, this is a ball that's going to maybe go into the corner. But when you're under it, you're going to hit more balls 
um, into the seats because the fences are a little shorter that part of the field. Um, you know, we have another guy who's just uh, a really, really scrappy hitter, and um, I don't know if he'll hit a home run in this time here, and that's fine. Um, but he's also a, a guy who will run a consistent 4-0, down the line. His ground balls, one, they get through the infield a lot. Two, every time he hits a ground ball, it puts all the pressure in the world on the defense. And so a guy like him, we say, we say to him, hey, hit this ball right off the pitcher's shin area, right past the pitcher's shin, um, as opposed to the ear, just hoping to you know, get less balls in the air for him. And then we have another guy who is one of the strongest guys I've ever been around. But, you know, we, we don't even change that, get the ball past the pitcher's ear with him, even though he has power that is the most elite power that I've been around in my time in coaching. And the reason why with him we don't change it is that, hey, if we start thinking hit balls in the air, the swing gets long. And from start to contact, all of a sudden, that time takes a long time for him to get there. Well, we need him to be as short to the ball as possible because we need him to get his barrel to the baseball. And when he's short to the baseball, he has the highest rate of barrel that he possibly can. And for a guy who's that strong, when he gets his barrel to the ball, great things happen. And so for me, if you can just think, hey, line drive right past the pitcher's ear as a hitter, that's a really, really good starting point. If you start developing to a point where you know, you're 23, 24, 25 years old, and you're in professional baseball, and um, they start working with you on getting balls up and over the fence, and, and that being a part of your consistent plan day in and day out, that's wonderful. But, uh, you know, even a couple of years ago, I was part of a team that we finished in the top five in the country and home runs, extra base hits, and hit for all the power in the world. We never had one guy... Um, on that roster, including a guy who ended up being a first-round pick and for a lot of the season led the country in home runs. We never talked about hitting anything other than a line drive right past the pitcher. And uh, I just think for for kids and, and, and even most players all the way through professional baseball, that approach just goes a really, really long way for you. What you're saying is amazing to me because it's so contradictory to most of the noise that you hear on social media. Now, let me preface by saying that guys like you and a lot of guys that are in your position aren't posting a lot on social media. The guys that are posting on social media are different. They work with different players. They have different objectives. But this is not what you're hearing, not what you're seeing a lot of. Um, and it's 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 just it's fun for me to hear what a guy that coaches at your level teaches and talks about with your players uh, and, and part of the reason we do these podcasts, Eddie, is because I want to help. I want to help hitting coaches at lower levels to be able to know what's happening at higher levels. Because again, if you listen to the noise on social media, it's you don't hear what you're talking about right now. So I want to just take the next few minutes, the last few minutes of the podcast, to sort of expand on that if we can. But I'm going to ask you sort of like a an adjacent question for a minute. I, I think a lot of people would hear what you're saying and think. Well, if, if if I'm going to get drafted, and if my if I'm going to get drafted in power as part of my game, I need to hit. I need to think about hitting the ball in the air. If I'm a power guy and I'm thinking about hitting, you know, head high a, a ball past the pitcher's ear, I'm not using my best tool, and I'm not going to. It's going to affect me in the draft. Uh, obviously, you have guys at LSU that are being drafted as hitters. 
what is your? Can you just talk about your your thoughts there? And and uh, obviously, you talk to major league scouts about your own players, and, and you've you've been just in, in this game for a long time. You've had a lot of guys drafted. For someone that would have that thought process that I just said, uh, you know, that, that even even a guy that is coaching or that's giving lessons that thinks I need to teach these kids to hit the ball in the air if they're going to get recruited to LSU if they're going to get drafted. I, I've got to teach these high school kids even to hit the ball in the air more. But, again, it's not what you're talking about. How, how would you um, – what conversation would you have with that person or how would you, I guess, react to that thought? Because I think this is a really important thing in, in youth baseball today in coaching hitters. Absolutely. There, there's no question it is because um, – you know, you hear about it a lot in the major leagues, and at the major league level, um, it's certainly understandable as to why you want to hit so many balls in the air and hit balls that are extra base hits. Um, I think there, there's many things that go into that and how that impacts a youth player, a high school player, a college player. Uh, the first thing I will start with is one of the first rules in scouting is that power is always the last tool to come. Power is the last tool to come. The story is as old as time of the kid who, um, you know, gets drafted at 18 years old or 21 years old and uh, doesn't have a whole lot of power but is a good hitter. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he goes up. And by the time he's 25 years old, the man muscles have developed a little or a lot more. And this guy is a middle of the lineup hitter in the major leagues. Um, it's always the last tool to come. And so I think it's so important that when we're working with hitters who are in their developing, developing stages of their careers, we teach them to be wholesome hitters, hitters that have a strong fundamental base, um, hitters that can really control the barrel, hitters that can be on the barrel consistently, hitters that can control the strike zone. Um, you know, I think that that's where for 99.9% of high school players, um, you hit fly balls at 95% of your maximum exit velocity, and they're fly ball outs. That's a reality of it. I go see this at high school games all the time. And so it's important to understand that, uh, you know, hits for most players are going to be a, a lower trajectory than a fly ball and it's important to understand that if you can't produce at the level you're playing at right now whether that's uh, your high school JV team you're not going to advance to the next level your high school varsity team if it's you know your high school varsity team if you can't produce you know hard hit balls a good batting average you're probably not going to be able to do that in college either and if you can't do it in college you're not going to get drafted and if you can't produce in single A, you're not going to get promoted to double A uh, very often. And, uh, you know, if you can't produce in double A, you're not going to get called up to the big leagues. And so it's so important to, yeah, you know, you always have to have an eye on the future and the player that you see yourself becoming down the road. But more importantly, you got to produce where your feet are right now. And I think when you look at the best players, um, you know, at, at the highest levels, and that I've ever been around, they produce in the moment where they are right now. And they work on being the best player that they are among their peers right then. And then they just keep doing that level after level after level. And then the last thing I'd say along those lines is if you really take a deep look into it, one of the most important things out there um, for college hitters, if you look at 
the research over the last five years is what I have researched. If you look at college hitters who are drafted in the top ten rounds, okay, they walk more than they strike out, and they don't strike out much. And so it shows elite control of the zone. It also shows that they just the 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 myth of the guy who strikes out a lot and hits but still has a lot of power. Um, there just are so few of those guys who get drafted um, that it just doesn't happen. And so trading strikeouts and with the eternal hope for power, um, it's not being rewarded by the major league draft. Okay, uh, it, it is at the major league level for some guys, but those guys—that is the top one percent of one percent hitters in the world when it comes to power. And in order to get there, in, in my opinion, you got a lot easier path to get there by being a complete ball player. One, certainly being a hitter that has a good foundation and is a good fundamental hitter and can get on the barrel a lot and doesn't strike out a lot. Also being a great teammate, also being a player who has a defensive position that's something other than DH, hopefully something in the middle of the field, and a good base runner and all those things, that's going to be your path to professional baseball before just being a big slugger is. An awesome answer. I've got one more, just one more question for you, I promise, last one. Um, and I, and I, again, I want to address this because I do think it's important for someone out there that wants to be a really good hitting coach. I think you've got to hear from really good hitting coaches. How much is it, how much is launch angle and attack angle a part of your language when you're talking with hitters? Because I, I feel uh, as someone who just likes to observe on social media that, that that's, uh, there are a lot of people that feel like that's, it's extremely important for players to hear and talk about and understand. But all the conversation that we've had has been much, much simpler cues and, um, you know, giving guys visuals of hitting a ball, hitting a line drive past the pitcher's ear or hitting a line drive past the pitcher's shin. How much is uh, our launch angle and attack angle a part of your verbiage to your players? You know, the, the actual number of a launch angle or an attack angle, it, it's not ever something that we bring up to a player in a teaching situation. You know, we do talk high line drive, the ball right past the pitcher's ear. Um, in our batting cages, one of the coolest things that we were able to do here is um, on the back wall of our batting cage, we painted a line that's right at 10 degrees of a launch angle. And, and I only know that it's 10 degrees because I was curious one day and I went and uh, walked it all off and did the measurements and figured out that that was 10 degrees. Um, but uh, it, it, it's something where, hey, this yellow line that we have that is 12 inches thick on the back wall of our batting cage, you know, hey, hit the ball off the yellow line. Hit the, not steering it there, just crushing balls right off the yellow line. Just as a visual for the guys of, Hey, when you hit balls right there at that height, great things happen for you. And um, so rarely do we, I, I would say even almost never do we say, hey, that ball right there, that's 12-degree launch angle, or that ball is 36-degree launch angle or 22-degree launch angle. Um, we, we just use the soft visuals a lot more often of the pitcher's shin, the pitcher's ear, the yellow line in our batting cages is as visuals for our hitters to understand kind of, hey, that's what a good ball flight looks like. Um, with attack angle, I'd say the best thing I would say with attack angle 
is that, hey, when you're hammering a nail into a two by four, if, if you miss that nail to the top, that nail's not going to go in very well. If you miss that nail because you're coming up from the bottom, that nail's not going to go in very well. When you're hitting, you want that hammer to go right through that nail. And that's an analogy that we'll use with our guys all the time. Hey, straight to that baseball and straight through that baseball. I think um, attack angle sometimes gets distorted because certainly there's a slight, slight, slight uphill movement when you're matching the plane of the baseball, when you're getting right hammer to the nail, you know. But um, what I see distorted so often is that people try to manufacture this uphill movement by having the first movement in their swing be hands going down and then working up. And um, when we talk about, you know, the barrel path, uh, which is naturally is attack angle, uh, what we want to emphasize is, hey, go to the baseball, then through the baseball. As you start to approach contact to that baseball, that's when you start getting your barrel through that baseball, and, and that's when your attack angle might increase a little bit. Um, the last thing I would say with all of this is when it comes to launch angle and attack angle, okay, more hitters err on the side of hitting too many balls in the air so naturally, we might try to emphasize them hitting balls a little bit lower so that they overemphasize hitting a line drive that is maybe 0 to 10 degrees, which in turn maybe produces more line drives in that honey hole of 15 to 25 degrees. You know, And when it comes to attack angle, more hitters swing uphill than hitters that chomp down on the baseball. And so... There's probably more emphasis on guys going straight to the baseball than there is, hey, get straight to that baseball and then start going uphill. Every individual is a little bit different with that, but I'm just saying if you have 100 hitters lined up that are um, you know, used to college-level hitters, you're probably going to have 80 to 90 of those hitters who hit a few too many balls in the air and have them a little bit too much uphill in their swing as opposed to guys who hit too many balls on the ground and too much downhill in their swing, in my experience. What an awesome conversation, and I wish we could keep going for another hour or two. (laughs) This is Eddie Smith, everybody. He's the hitting coach at LSU, and this conversation has been profoundly simple. Uh, The way that, that you teach hitting and talk about hitting it's it's like you make it too simple. It sounds like I mean anybody anybody can can do this. Anybody can teach what you're talking about and and have success with it. And and why people want to make it as complex as they do sometimes. You know, listening to you, it's like why why would you need to make it more complex? And this this is this has been truly great. Uh, I I think what an amazing resource for figured out baseball subscribers to be able to listen to you, Coach Smith. So I, I want to thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today uh, for a second time. And uh, and maybe there's a time, you know, sometime down the road we can get you on here for the third one because I've had I had several things I had written down that I wanted to get into that we didn't have time today. But but I, I thank you for the time you did put in and and just want to wish you and your team all the luck in the world and hopefully we see you guys out in the field this spring. Well, I sure appreciate the time, Jeff. And uh, hey, we've done two. We might as well go for the trifecta here soon. So uh, have a great holiday, and um, hope all the listeners out there have a great holiday season. And hey, spring's right around the corner.